Well, when the world is turned upside down, when, when you're in the midst of uncertainty and fear, isolation, not knowing uh, what the immediate future holds, what do we count on? What do we hold on to? 2020 has been a rough year, and the coronavirus, which continues to be on the rise here in, in Utah and in other states, um, it's, it's difficult to see when the end will be in sight. And so I, uh, we've heard all sorts of interesting things about 2020. I, I saw a meme the other day that had a, an image of, uh, of a bridge, a dilapidated sort of rope bridge, going across this big, huge canyon, and, and most of the uh, footings of the bridge were falling apart, and it was a bridge that looked like it was going to collapse. And the meme at the top of, of the image said, uh, we're at the home stretch, 2020. We're almost there. And I just thought, that well, what an interesting picture of, of our times with everything that is going on around us. I've had a number of people, you know, from, from the coronavirus to violence in the streets to the divisive political election to polarized media to fires and floods and earthquakes and everything else. Some people have asked me, um, I've had a number of times of, of folks have asked me, is this the end? Are we living in, in the last days? Is this, is this Armageddon? Is Jesus going to come back uh, in the next couple of weeks or in our life before 2020? Is this the last year of human history? And every time um, I'm asked that question, I say, I don't know. And the reason I say I don't know is because, well, I don't know. And also because Jesus commands me not to answer that question, um, but to be ready to be steadfast, uh, to endure, and to be alert, spiritually alert and faithful uh, for when, whenever that day might come. Today we're looking at the book of Revelation, which is a book that um, talks about the end. It kind of answers, it answers the question, what is God's end game? And if you haven't been with us the last several weeks, we've been looking at the, at the scriptures as, a, as one big story, as a grand meta-narrative that helps to make sense of all of the other stories that we experience in our life. It helps to make sense of what's going on in our world as well as our everyday lives as Christians. It offers a worldview for us that gives us confidence as we uh, seek to follow Christ in the world. And it began in the garden, and it kind of ends, we'll see, essentially in the same way. The garden was paradise, and we'll see in today's message that paradise is finally restored. But the, but the story is, comes in its several different acts. It begins with creation and paradise, and then there's the fall, which Adam and Eve, they decide to disobey God and to live according to their own terms, which is kind of like an archetype story for how we live our lives. We know that we, we, are not always, we don't do what we're supposed to do, and we uh, hide from God, and then God pursues us, and we see through the relationship between Israel and God, this struggle of faithfulness. Uh, of the people of Israel and God's constant faithfulness until Jesus then comes and takes, uh, lives, lives the way that God intended for Israel to live, to fulfill the promise, to usher in the new reign and the kingdom and to die on the cross for us on our behalf. And then in the next plot, in the next act, in Act 5, there's the sending of the Spirit onto the church. And that's actually where we live right now. We live uh, in, in the age of the Spirit, the age of the church. And we live in this age as we look forward to Act 6, which I'm going to talk about today. 
which is the new heavens and the new earth, God's future promise of what the end will be. And so it begins in paradise, and it is then paradise restored today. But the book of Revelation is interesting. It's, uh, it takes us through a series of horrific images and incredible battles and violence and beasts and, and all of these uh, unimaginable suffering and this incredible imagery. And this is why I think that when it comes to the book of Revelation, there are essentially two kinds of Christians in the world. There are those who love the book of Revelation... And then there are those who are afraid of those who love the book of Revelation. Um, and so, but it, Revelation is not something to be afraid of. As we'll see, our reading from the 21st chapter is this beautiful vision of the new creation. It comes after a lot of the horrific images, and I'll talk through those a little bit. But I want us to read the, uh, the text from Revelation 21, which gives us this wonderful vision Verses 1 through 4. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be His peoples. And God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh God, we pray as we come to place our lives here in front of Your open word, that you will send your Holy Spirit to speak to us, even in the deepest, most protected corners of our hearts. Mere mortal words will not do. So may we hear the voice of the Spirit as you speak to us today and transform us into the word made flesh, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I want to begin by saying that the book of Revelation, and and I think at another point, maybe next year, we'll do a deeper dive into Revelation. And if you want to study it a little bit throughout throughout the week, I've put together a devotional guide that will help you um, guide yourself through the book of Revelation each day this week. And you can find that on the website, and that might be helpful for you. But Revelation is not meant to be a manual to try to understand and predict the end times. Instead, it's a letter. It's a letter that was written to seven churches to give them hope, to offer encouragement, and to continue to challenge them to remain steadfast and faithful in the midst of all of the challenges that they were experiencing in the first century. It was a way of saying that whatever it is that you're walking through, all of the challenges that you face do not have the last word. The worst thing is not the last thing. If there's a message or a refrain from the book of Revelation that that gives its meaning to us, it is simply that, that the worst thing is not the last thing. 
And so Revelation appears at the very, and I'm going to kind of talk through some of the history of this a little bit. Revelation appears at the very end of the Bible. It's about the length of Paul's uh, letter to the Romans. It's about the same length as that. And it was written to seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, and these churches were north of the island of Patmos, uh, on the, the western part of Turkey, kind of below the region of Galatia, um, above the, the Mediterranean Sea. Ephesus was one of those churches and six other churches around the church of Ephesus, including Philadelphia, Laodicea, Thyatira, um, and uh, several others. And so John is writing to these seven churches, all within a same, similar geographic region, and they're going through something very significant. Now remember that the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, the epistles of John and Revelation are all attributed to the same author, the beloved disciple John. And John was in exile on the island of Patmos when he wrote this letter to these seven churches. And it was written in a style of literature called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature uh, was a form, a genre of literature that came into the world uh, over about a 400-year period, about 200 years before Christ and about 200 years after Christ. And apocalyptic literature is a kind of genre that is intended to use dramatic imagery and metaphor to, to, um, to convey emotion. It is meant to be evocative. And so when we read it, we don't necessarily understand it cognitively, but it has an emotional effect on us. And that's kind of what the book of Revelation is meant to do. Um, it's, it's these evocative images telling a story about what ultimately happens. That God's power and God's control over evil, over hate, sin, and death will finally win the day over the forces of evil at work around us, over discouraging and disorienting times. And that's what this kind of apocalyptic literature is, is kind of meant to convey. And so it's meant to, to, to speak words that move you emotionally, that don't make a whole lot of cognitive sense, at least not always. It's very symbolic language. We don't really know exactly when the book of Revelation was, was written. There's great debate about whether it was written perhaps in 69 A.D. or perhaps in 96 A.D. And if it was in 69 A.D., that w would have been written right after the time uh, when Nero was killed. Uh, Nero was the, was the emperor, and he took his own life. Um, in 69 AD. If it was written in 96 AD, it would have been the time uh, just after or just before Domitian uh, was, was assassinated by his own people. And so this is a little, either case, is a little bit of the backdrop of what's going on um, around the book of Revelation. So somewhere in the last third of the first century, these letters were written. And they were written to these seven churches. And I want to mention that in A.D. 64, this history is, is really helpful for us to understand Revelation. In A.D. 64, Nero the, was the emperor, and he was going through a difficult time. Um, he, his, his approval ratings were, low, were very, very low. Um, and uh, many, many people in the, emperor, in, the em in the empire did not like him. And he knew this. He, he knew things weren't going well for him. And so what he did was he, he hired a, a group of thugs to go into the city of Rome and to set fires throughout the city of Rome. 
And so he did that, and, and this would be a secret operation, and they burned most of the city of Rome. And, um, and this would then allow him to shift the public view and the public opinion from his leadership failures to now his ability to raise taxes to rebuild the city of Rome. And so everyone was focused away from his failure as a leader onto the new opportunity to rebuild Rome, which Nero could do. And of course, because this was all secret... Um, Nero said that the reason this fire came in the, in the city of Rome was because the gods were angry. And the gods were angry at a little sect of Jewish people or people who were influenced by Judaism called Christians. And the reason that the gods were angry was because these Christians, these followers of people of the way... Uh, they refused to worship the state gods. And so Nero accused them of being atheists because they would not worship the emperor and, uh, and, and bow down to the empire and make sacrifices to the emperor. And so the gods were angry and they caused this, this fire in Rome. Well, what do you think that, that did for the people in Rome towards the Christians? Well, what it meant was that the, the Romans decided to, this, these rumors and other rumors circulated around and the Christians became sort of the bad people within the empire. And so Nero and the Romans started rounding up Christians and they started to slaughter them and to kill them. Um, and this is part of the backdrop of the book of Revelation. Tacitus, um, Tacitus was, a, was a little boy when all of this happened and he grew up to become an historian. And in his history book, he writes something about Nero rounding up the Christians in light of the fire of Rome, blaming them for what they had no part in at all. And this is what he writes. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to, and when the day waned, they burned to serve for the evening lights. These are our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors in the faith. And so Nero entertained himself and his guests by slaughtering these Christians. And among these Christians who were killed during this period, during this period of Nero rounding up the Christians, among them were the apostles Peter and Paul our beloved ancestors, our beloved apostles. And Peter was crucified upside down and Paul was beheaded. This is the backdrop to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not a terrifying book to the first Christians. It's a book that they longed for. I'll explain a little bit more. Shortly after uh, the rounding up of Christians, the Jews rebelled in Jerusalem, kind of unrelated uh, to the fire in Rome. But the Jews rebelled against the empire in Jerusalem, and so Nero sent 60,000 troops 
to the Holy Land to begin slaughtering the Jews. And they went to Galilee and to Judea, and then they surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and they stayed there for three years, and they slaughtered, and they slaughtered, and they slaughtered. And then after they were done burning down the temple in Jerusalem, they moved down to, uh, to Masada, and they took over the rebels there, and they slaughtered, and they slaughtered, and they slaughtered. And for seven years, over the course of seven years, they, the Romans killed one million Jews um, by 73 AD. This violence, this slaughtering, this making a mockery of human life is commonplace and the backdrop of the text we're reading today. Nero and Domitian, as you can imagine, were morally bankrupt. They were narcissistic, very narcissistic leaders. They were oppressive and they insisted on being hailed with terms that Christians would only reserve for Jesus. And so Nero was demanded that he would be called Savior and Lord and demanded that the Christians would bow down to him and call him Savior and Lord. Domitian added the term God to that so that he would be called Lord and God. And the Christians would refuse to do this. Uh, most of them anyway, and that's what the purpose of Revelation was about. The area in Asia Minor where these churches existed on, the, um, uh, on sort of in modern-day Turkey, that particular area was the center of emperor worship on the eastern part of the entire uh, Roman Empire. And so in each one of these seven cities, I should have had a map, I wish I had a map, but in each one of these seven cities, there, there was a temple dedicated to the god Domitian and to the goddess Roma. Roma was a goddess that they created to be the, to be the divine embodiment of the empire itself. So they're melding divinity and their power and rule together. And so it was the, they had these temples, and so the people would go into uh, the temple, and they would bring sacrifices to the goddess Roma and to the god Domitian, and they would worship there. And a part of it was a way to say we're loyal to the emperor, and part of it was a way to say we're not like those traitors, those Christians who had problems with Rome and who refused to bring sacrifices. And so the Christians were struggling through this, right? And so some Christians started to compromise a little bit, like, like they would cross their fingers while they're bringing their sacrifice to, to the temple in Domitian, thinking that, well, maybe, you know, I can kind of do this over here to placate these people, and, and then I'll pray, and I can kind of hold these two things together. Some Christians were doing that. Some Christians were giving up their faith altogether. This doesn't make any sense. We're being slaughtered. I'm just going to go with the winning team here with Rome and, and transfer. Others just lived totally scared all the time, and, and uh, it was very, very brutal. And the book of Revelation was written to say, endure. Practice endurance. Don't give up. Never, never, never give up. Um, hold fast to your faith, because this Rome and this emperor and the destruction in Jerusalem, and the killing of the apostles in Asia, none of this is going to have the final word. There's a promise. There's, there's a future for you. And the book addresses all of this in, the le in these letters to these churches. And so each one of the churches is um, addressed pa pastorally through the letter. And then it gets into these visions 
and um, all of this uh, bizarre apocalyptic literature. And I'll share a little, some of this. I'm not going to go into all of it, but somewhat of a summary of the book of Revelation. There's a series of visions that, uh, that depict Jesus um, as, as a lion and he's a lamb. Now, you, you can't really picture all of these images because that's part of the evocative nature of it. But Jesus is a lion and he's a lamb and he's riding on a horse and he has a sword coming out of his mouth and he has brass shoes and he opens up these scrolls to read the scrolls. It's not something you can literally picture, but instead every one of these things describes something about Jesus. Uh, he knows everything. Uh, he, he's perfect. He has the power with his own words to pierce the heart. He's the Lion of Judah who reigns victorious. He's the sacrificial lamb who sacrificed his life for us. And then there are 19 songs throughout the book of Revelation. We get some of our songs from the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, a hearkening to Isaiah, but it's in Revelation. And, and a lot of the teaching is found, if you're interested in the book, in the songs of the book of Revelation kind of unlocks the meaning of it. And then there's this judgment that comes in Revelation upon the earth. Again, it's a judgment that the first Christians weren't exactly fearing, but it was a judgment that they were hoping for, longing for, that God would end the injustice, this brutal oppression that was taking place, and even correct the sin in their own lives. That's what judgment does. It is a corrective thing in, in, the, in the Scriptures. And so there's, there are these this power, uh, powerful battle of God unleashing His wrath upon these great forces of evil in the book of Revelation. So there's this red dragon, and there's a woman on the dragon, and the dragon has seven heads. And, uh, and this woman is called a harlot. She's a harlot riding on the dragon with seven heads, and she sits on the dragon. And these seven heads, the writer tells us, are seven hills on which the woman sits. And of course, Rome is the city on seven hills, right? But not only that, uh, if you keep reading, you find that this woman is called Babylon. It's written on her forehead. And so if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Babylon was the, the nation that sent their troops in and, and sacked Jerusalem, burnt down the temple in 586 B.C. and took, took the Israelites away into captivity, into exile. It's a way of saying Rome is the new Babylon who burned down the temple in 70 A.D. This is the new Babylon taking place. It also talks about how these seven heads are seven kings. And if you were to count the number of emperors from Augustus all the way to just after the time of Nero, uh, you have, um, uh, is it Nero? Yeah, you have seven emperors. Seven emperors, right? So you, you, this is not confusing to the first century readers. You remember the mark of the beast. You've heard of the mark of the beast, right? There's this beast in the book of Revelation. It's probably the most famous thing. Everybody has heard of the number 666, and it's supposed to represent the Antichrist. And, and this mark of the beast, if you want to buy and sell in the end times, if you want to have trade, you have to have the mark of the beast on your forehead in order to buy and sell and in order to get that mark of the beast, you have to give your allegiance to it, right? So, um, and of course, people have had all sorts of theories about what that means. Well, there's a number, of course, that's a number. 666 is a number. 
Well, um, in Hebrew, and what does that number mean? In Hebrew, Greek, and in Latin, the letters, every letter has a corresponding number to it. It's kind of like our Roman numerals. It has a, a value, a numerical value for every letter, and it's no different in Hebrew. Um, if you take the name Neron Caesar, which was his common title at that time, Neron Caesar, and you add up the numbers that correspond with the letters, you get 666. Again, this isn't very confusing to the people who were reading this in the first century. It was about the evil that was happening around them, and the threat to the church, and the spreading of the gospel, and the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And it's about what God is going to do to destroy it for good. Then Christ comes riding in on a white stallion and he destroys evil and he destroys the beasts and he destroys the harlot. And then there's this thousand year period where there will be peace and then the devil will be unleashed again for a period of time. And this is called the millennial reign of Christ. Nobody really knows what to do with this. There's all sorts of different theories about the millennial reign of Christ. But probably what it means is that once Domitian or Nero are done being emperor, then we're going to have a bit of a time of peace until Christ returns. And so this is kind of the the summary of the book of Revelation uh, up to chapter 20. All the sort of scary stuff, most, most of which is directly related to Rome. And then we get this wonderful vision that we read a moment ago about every tear being dried, about uh, mourning being turned into dancing. And so the story of the Bible begins with paradise, this beautiful garden where all is well, and there's harmony between God and people, between people and one another, and between people and the natural world. And then it ends essentially the same way. The original creation is restored, except that there is human civilization in its fullness. Heaven isn't a place we escape off to. It's a place that comes here, and the earth is renewed and restored. Let's take a look at Revelation 22, because I think it gives this beautiful image that harkens back to the creation story Uh, Listen to this from Revelation 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, producing its fruit each month, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name, his name, not Rome, will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night, They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a beautiful image. So John's purpose in writing Revelation wasn't to speculate about the end of days, about the events that will happen at the end of time, but to provide a vision 
that will inspire and encourage us to move forward with confidence, perseverance, and a deep faith and conviction for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Endure. But how? Why? With everything going on around us, why, with everything going on with these first Christians, why would they do that? Why, what would give them? How would they do that? And how? why would we... Why would we live in such a way? Because if you know how the story ends, it changes your perspective on the chapter that you're living right now. Here's John's point. If you believe that Christ is behind you and ahead of you, then you can be free to live under heaven every day of your life. That makes all the difference in how we live. I want to try to describe this through an analogy. Let's say that you're um, a baseball player, and uh, it's, you're in the World Series, and it's the bottom of the seventh inning, and you're down by five runs. Bottom of the seventh, you're down by five. It doesn't look like you're going to win. You've been kind of dominated the whole game. But out of nowhere, somebody, this is up there, somebody comes into the dugout with a real crystal ball. And you look into the crystal ball, and it has this wonderful image of you and the team celebrating victory, and it says that you end up winning the game by two. And then it, the person disappears with the crystal ball, and you know for, without a shadow of a doubt that you're going to win this game. What you don't know is how. How am I going to get from being down by five to winning the game? You know you're going to win the game. So how do you, how do you think you're going to play the game? Are you going to say, well, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I can't conceive how, we're going to, how I'm going to get seven runs in these two innings. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, I know we're going to win, but I don't really see how. You know what? Let's just hang out in the dugout and start the after party early and see how it all turns out. No, you wouldn't do that. If you knew you were going to win, you're going to step up to the plate and you're going to play like a winner, Right? Um, not only that, you might think on the one hand we're down by five, on the other hand we're going to win. I know that both of these are true, but I can't conceive how we're going to get from here to there. I don't know exactly how it's going to unfold, when we're going to start hitting the ball and getting around these bases. Will there be a grand slam, or will there be a series of singles and doubles? I don't know how I'm going to get from here to there. Right. That's called faith. That's called faith. And that's why we live in the fifth act. We know how the story's going to end. We know act six. And so now in act five, we, we improvise according to the bounds of the story. We play as though we are going to win. Because in fact, we are. And that's how we live this chapter of the big story. So what does that look like? How do we live on this side of the new beginning? I think Paul's words to us at the end of his letter to the church in Philippi is a word for us in this regard. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned 
and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. In the midst of disorienting times and confusion and uncertainty, what do we do? We keep on doing the things that we know to be good and true and right. We keep coming to worship week in and week out, even through the challenges of virtual dynamics, because we know deep in our bones that we need it. We keep praying, we keep reading the scriptures, we keep serving the poor, we keep serving the community, just keep doing what you know to do, and the God of peace will be with you, will carry you through this time. And don't give up this hope. Whatever you do, don't give up hope. There was a a rabbi who died in 1996 who was a Holocaust survivor by the name of Rabbi Hugo Grin, and I'll end with this story. Uh, Rabbi Hugo Grin was arguably the most beloved rabbi in all of Great Britain until he died in, in 96. And, and uh, when he was a boy, he was a little boy. His family was stationed in Auschwitz. And they had nothing, of course, and they were suffering malnutrition. And and his father, they were Orthodox Jews, and his father was uh, insistent upon uh, observing Sabbath and the festivals even throughout their Auschwitz experience. And one day, the father took um, a little stick of butter, and he put a string in it, and he lit, lit it as a candle, a Shabbat candle. And the little boy, Hugo Grin, uh, as a boy, he was furious about this. And so he protested to his father and he said, Father, how, Papa, how can, we, how can we do this? We have nothing. Not even a little butter can be spared. How can you do this? You're using up our butter and you're wasting it on this candle. And the father said, Son, we can live for weeks without food, but we cannot live for one minute without hope. There is always hope. And goodness reigns. Christ is victor. God is in charge. And you're going to be okay. That's the good news of the story. This is your story. This is my story. Let us pray. Gracious God, Help us to hear words of hope, to see your vision of a renewed world and to point the world in your direction. As we look toward the new heaven and new earth, may we too be a people whose highest calling is to be a people of hope. Keep us strong in faith and steadfast as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In response to this song, I invite a a moment of reflection for a few minutes. Reflection, or you can sing along. We're going to watch a a brief, um, a four-minute rendition of Amazing Grace that was put together by uh, a group of musicians from around the world, a number of different countries all around the world. And last Sunday was communion, World Communion Sunday, where Christians from around the world celebrated uh, their oneness in Christ. And so as we participate in communion on the second Sunday of, of the month, We remember World Communion Sunday today as well. Let's join together and sing Amazing Grace.